0: to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So it's the day after Independence Day. And uh, we thought about actually we thought about actually dropping this podcast on Independence Day, but then we realized you probably wouldn't be in a position to listen to it. But here's what we wanted to do. We actually wanted to go through the Declaration of Independence. What a crazy idea. And the reason why we're going to do this, and, and for those of you out there, we, we've actually had some people contact saying that they use our podcast, they use some of our Y minutes and things like that for their homeschooling. Here's why we're going through the Declaration of Independence, because I'm willing to bet right now that if I went and I talked to just about anybody, man on the street interview, and I said, why did the 13 colonies declare independence from Great Britain? I'm willing to bet the answer would be, if there was an answer, taxation without representation. And that is true in the sense that that was one of many reasons. But you'll be surprised to find out that the reason why that's the only reason you know about is actually influenced by a decision that was made with respect to a certain theory on human history, on revolutions, on what motivates people to do things. And it's influenced the way your children have been taught to think about independence about the 4th of July. So today we're going to go through, and for some of you, this might be the first time you've really heard a point-by-point breakdown of the Declaration of Independence, why it's important. That's what we're going to do today in order to equip you with the argument you need To explain to a a growing number of people that are actually refusing to celebrate Independence Day. You're going to be able to sit here and you're going to be able to explain the philosophical reasons on why it's important and why it's something that we should be able to defend. Team Freddy, Soaps you had a wonderful Independence Day, thank you for joining us on
1: this episode. I'm looking forward to our making the argument section because I have a few questions for Nick that I'm looking forward to asking. If you find today's episode valuable, leave us a comment on YouTube and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.
0: All right. Well, as always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, I'm a good person. Also, I think today, especially, I want to also point out that I represent James Madison's district in the Virginia House of Delegates, the oldest legislative body in the Western Hemisphere, over 400 years old. So, again, my district started off with James Madison and now has me. Well, sorry, guys. And with us, as always, my beautiful, lovely wife, Queen of the Bees, Tina.
2: Hello, everybody.
0: Resident historian, political prognosticator, and this is an episode Christian will be able to provide some unique insight into Christian Hines.
2: <laughs> hey, every how episode. You doing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Not that he doesn't provide unique insight in every episode, but sure. Christian is—I mean, it, it's painful for me to admit that anybody might know more about American history than me. But Christian, Christian fits in that category, and then of course our producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you, Nick. All right, so let's get right into it. We're gonna we're gonna not read this all all at once. Don't worry, um, but we're gonna go through this kind of point by point. So let's start off in Congress, July fourth, seventeen seventy six, the unanimous Declaration of the thirteen United States of America. Now I want to emphasize something here. If you read the Declaration of Independence, it says the unanimous Declaration of the thirteen United. That's all like the the United part in the United States. That's not. Uppercase, right? That's not capitalized. It's lowercase. It's lowercase, and the reason why is because they were the emphasis was on the United States, the individual states, the individual. They went from calling themselves colonies, British colonies, to calling right. them states in this document, and that was actually that's that's a a legal definition. And they were adamant about two things. One, they they no longer considered themselves to be colonies of Great Britain. They considered themselves to be independent states. And they considered to be independent of each other on some level, but were united in common cause with respect to this sure. issue. Could you right? give
1: us a little context uh, as to what was happening before the Declaration of Independence was Written.
0: So we're going to, we're going to, what's interesting is the Declaration of Independence actually tells you what was going okay. on before okay. it was written. And, and that's, that's important because so many people, again, all they know is taxation without sure. representation. Uh, but another thing that's important to understand is when this debate was going on. And, and I have to tell you, if you want to look at like a popular modern rendition of this, the HBO, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the HBO series, John Adams.
2: Oh, that's excellent.
0: Episodes one and two okay. in that are phenomenal. And, and again, obviously Hollywood takes a lot of license with some stuff. But if you're looking at kind of the nature of some of the debates and where various states were, like for instance, uh, South Carolina, New York state were, were very hesitant with respect to the whole declaring of independence, South Carolina, a lot of their trade, they, you know, culturally and whatnot, very dependent upon England, uh, New York had, you know, British ships, uh, you know, again, trade was a big component, but also there was a, a larger military presence uh, going on. And it, and it was centered around, you know, New York, Massachusetts, etc. Um, So there were certain states that were very hesitant about this. Okay. So, but that's that, that first line. And that's, there's, there's important information packed into the very first line of the Declaration of Independence. Now let's go into the part that most people are a little bit more, there's, there's two sections here that people are a little bit more familiar with. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Two things in here that I think are very important. One is is that they they are going to the laws of nature and nature's God. So they're essentially right there at the very beginning they're saying that there is a certain moral order to society that is a uh, um you know a, a result of there being a god and and god's created order right so it's this idea that there is there is a law there is an order which is above political society right that that's the first component
1: i, f- I find it interesting here that not only did they reference the laws of nature but also nature's god yes they could have just referenced laws of nature and been sufficient, but they thought it was necessary to also reference nature's God. Well,
2: and because they, it wasn't sufficient. Yeah, yeah, and and, and honestly,
0: that, <laughs> they don't that's exist it. in
2: a vacuum. They in don't order, exist on their own.
0: In order to have a moral law, you have to have a moral law giver. Nature is not a moral law giver, right? And so they are appealing to this this idea that no God has created order. They're not necessarily specifying a particular denomination, because you had the different denominations um, within the the Continental Congress, but they they do recognize the importance of that element. Um, The other part in here that's really important is this, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. So they're, they're essentially letting you know that this isn't, and and they're going to get into this more. This isn't just something, this isn't a simple disagreement. Like they recognize, they understand and recognize the importance of the connection culturally and historically that they've had with Great Britain. In fact, all the way up until this point, they had largely considered themselves British citizens fighting for what they thought were the inherent rights of British citizens. But now something's changing, and they recognize that they have an obligation to explain why it's changing. Now we go into the part that most people, when you ask about the Declaration of Independence, remember. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this because I think we all kind of understand it, but this the reason why everyone knows this part is because philosophically, it's 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 revolutionary in one sense mm-hmm. because he's saying we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, you could easily argue that for most of human history, nobody thought that was self-evident. Nobody even thought that was true, much less self-evident. But the idea that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The original draft, Christian, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was life, liberty, and property.
3: Um, I don't know if that was the original draft, but I definitely know that's the language that John Locke used. Okay. So um, for those of you who've never heard of John Locke, go look him up because he was kind of the intellectual grandfather of arguably the entire revolution itself. He lived... About a hundred years before the American Revolution, in um, in Great Britain, and Locke ended up writing a lot of his political theories um, down. He 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 set a lot of them down to paper around the time of the Glorious Revolution of 1688, which is when uh, James II he was the monarch at the time. He wanted to be an absolute monarch in the same vein as the French kings across the English Channel. He was overthrown in a largely peaceful revolution that they, um, they brought William of Orange over from the Netherlands. And at that point, they established the whole principle that parliament was, even though the monarchy was still in place, it was the idea that parliament was superior to the monarchy in many respects because parliament carried the, the will of the people. And it was parliament also that was sovereign alongside the monarch. And... A lot of the founding fathers took a lot of John Locke's um, writings because Locke was basically writing a justification for the glorious revolution around the time that it was happening. And he was giving the, you know, because historically it was like unthinkable that you would overthrow the king like that. You just don't do that. Yeah. And and so so Locke was giving this this explanation. And one of the reasons that he gave for justification for overthrowing James was the idea that it was necessary in order to secure life, liberty, and property.
0: Yeah. So, but life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, again, I I think some of the discussion about pursuit of happiness was the idea that it was a little bit more all-encompassing and that that would obviously include property rights as well, because a key component of being able to, you know, do what you want to do with your life, raise your family and whatnot, includes that component. But again, there's also the reference to the idea that all people are created equal and men are created equal. And a lot of people look at that like, oh, well, what a what a ridiculous statement from somebody because Thomas Jefferson actually wrote the, the Declaration of Independence. He was part of a committee, but he was the primary author. Um, and he, he was a slave owner. And what's interesting is that when you look back in the future, in the civil rights movement, whether it's Frederick Douglass in uh, the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, whether it's Martin Luther King, they reference back to all men are created equal as this was a contradiction. And what's interesting is Jefferson also struggled with this because Jefferson, um, Jefferson understood on some level that slavery was immoral. Mm-hmm. He didn't know how to, he didn't know how to essentially eradicate the practice. And that sounds weird to us today, but there was huge legal, political <laughs> Yeah. Legal, political and economic implications to that. Um, but he, he basically wrote the poison pill for slavery in the future. Because it is a contradiction. So this idea that you're created equal, that um, these are truths, right? This is this is not a political. He's not saying this is a political opinion. He's saying these truths are self-evident that all men are created equal and that they're entitled to certain unalienable rights. Which means that governments have an obligation to protect these things. Government do not grant these things. Right. They have an obligation to protect them, and that's critical. This is the again the reason why this statement is so you know, popularly understood and and referenced within the Declaration of Independence is because it was considered philosophically revolutionary uh, at the time.
1: Would you say that many Americans think that their rights are derived because government gives it to them? Well, here's another interesting part, right? Well, hold
2: on, though. (laughs) There was one thing that I wanted to ask, um, because I've I've had women, you know, when I say, you know, all all people are created equal, she goes, well, that's not what it says. It says all men are created equal. Oh, and that was that the patriarchy. Line. And what is interesting to me is because, is that all throughout history, the word man has been used to say mankind, it, yeah. humankind. It's just for some reason.
3: The language has evolved. And you see this in other other languages. And I don't want to get off on a tangent, so I'm going to make this really quick. When you look at um, Spanish is a good example. So Spanish is a gendered language. Whenever you're using a a word or phrase, there's a gender attached to it. And in Spanish, when you're referring to a group of people of both sexes, you use the masculine, um, uh, you know, uh, pronouns for that. In English, we don't have gendered languages. And there's a whole long story for why that we won't get into in this episode. But long story short, historically because of the you have to like get into like the history of the English language to understand it but if you get into the history of the English language you you would understand that historically as you said the word man or men or mankind referred to people of both sexes it was only later on that man came to refer to what we today would refer to men
2: yeah. And but what is that anyway? So, uh,
3: well, yeah, what is a man? <laughs> I mean, but, it, but like, like my, we are
2: uh, to the point where they're throwing that out anyway. Yeah.
3: My point is, is that, like, obviously, you know, it wasn't until the 20th century that we enshrined in the Constitution, things like the right to vote for women. But I would argue that the origins of the women's suffrage movement in first wave feminism actually find themselves in the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, oh, they, absolutely. They, they, This is something that the left misses so often. I think we're probably going to get into this in this episode, that the left points to history. They, they point to the fact that at the founding of this country, in order for you to exert a, a significant degree of political influence on our institutions, you had to be white, you had to be a property owner, you had to be male. And they say, therefore... The United States was founded on bigotry and racism and sexism and slavery and all of this stuff. When What they don't realize was, first off, 99% of the world at the time, you didn't have any voting rights yeah. whatsoever. There was no representative government. Yeah. And we've said this in a previous episode where the vast majority of the world, absolute monarchies. And if you weren't nobility, if you weren't royalty, you were a pleb. And that was it. And there was no upward mobility. And the beauty of our country was is that the founding fathers did not create a system of government, and they did not create founding documents that were perfect. But you know what they did? They gave us founding documents and they gave us a system of government where these problems could be solved. Mm-hmm. They did not solve every single one of the problems at the inception of this country, obviously. Yeah. But they, the, the beauty was is that they gave us a political system where these problems could eventually be yeah. solved. They gave and us many something of to them, for. Many well, and, of them and, were.
0: And this, go, and this goes to the next part of the Declaration of Independence, right? So we've just gone out of talking about these truths are self-evident created um, unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then it goes in that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So again, you have to look, Christian did a good job of bringing up this whole idea of like looking at things within the context of the time in which it was happening, right? It was revolutionary that anybody would say that all men were created equal, right? That was revolutionary. It was also revolutionary to suggest at a time when a lot of people were still operating off of the idea of the divine right of Kings, right? It was the idea that, um, or, or like what the Chinese called the mandate of heaven. It was the idea that when you had leadership, when you had political leadership in power, that there was some sort of, of uh, you know, ultimate divine authority that they were exercising, right? I'm not talking about kind of the, the Christian concept of, you know, being respectful of, of the authorities put in place. I'm talking about kind of a, a perversion, which said that if whoever was in charge was in charge because they either, they either were divinity or they had some sort of, you know, special divine influence that nobody else had or could have. So when they're saying that to secure their, so first of all, they're saying that governments, again, governments do not grant the rights. It's to secure these rights. Right. So they're assuming that the rights already exist as, as a part of God's created order. And then governments are instituted for the purpose of securing those rights. And if they're not doing it, if they're not securing those rights, or if they're directly infringing them on them or inhibiting in them, then people have a right to be able to alter or abolish that government and then set up a new form of government that will secure those rights. Again, this is revolutionary. Yeah. All right, let's go to another one. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light or transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. All he's saying there right now is that, you know, a, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of um, you know economic turbulence, a lot of hardship can be had by changing your system of government or by breaking away from established systems that you've been a part of for, you know, hundreds of years for like light causes. So this is not some, so a lot of this, we see this right now with the Supreme Court. Oh my gosh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which means the states are now, we should abolish the Supreme Court. I'm moving. I'm okay. what, What they're saying here is stuff like that's absurd. This idea that you're going to completely um, eradicate the system of government you have, or fundamentally alter it, um, you, you know, it, it, that's something that should be taken very, very seriously. What was that line? You might be
3: able to to answer this. What was that line that um, that Thomas Sowell uses a lot about fence posts in the ground?
0: Oh, yeah. So Thomas Sowell essentially says that when when you when you find a fence and you don't know why it's there. There's essentially two things that you can do. You, you can rip it up and say, well, this fence is impeding me or, or I don't understand why it's there. So this should go. Or you can ask the question, why was the fence put there in the first place? Yeah. And what Thomas Sowell is essentially saying in that moment is it could be that the fence needs to go. But if you don't understand why the fence was put up or the context in which it was put up, you can make some pretty disastrous decisions by simply saying, well, this is an impediment. Um, to where I think I want to go. Well, So again, if you lift the fence up and you realize that the fence was put in there 300 years ago for a purpose that it no longer serves, fine. You could find out that the fence was put up for a a bad and immoral reason, fine, get rid of it. Or you could find out that there's a really angry bull on the other side of that fence and you just went in and got gored, right?
3: So the reason I bring that up is because I think that that really gets to the heart of what made the Declaration of Independence so remarkable, Because even though it was a monumental revolutionary act, they did not do it lightly. And I think that's in huge contrast with what happened in France just a few years later. Mm -hmm. Because it is true, the founding fathers did rip up a fence post. But as they list out explicitly in this document... They give very, very clear reasons why, and they build up to this moment and say, this is a big deal. We recognize it's a big deal. We recognize we're ripping the fence post out of the ground, but we didn't just stumble across it and decide it's in our way. You know, we wanted a different marginal tax rate, you know, so so we're, we're going to, you know, stage a revolution, overthrow the British and set up an independent state. That's a big deal. Yeah. and 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 they gave rational reasonable explanations why because they understood that they had an obligation to do so which is in in such contrast with what happened in France literally less than a generation later like 10-15 years later because in France they did rip the fence post up and they didn't really give a whole lot of explanations why and you know what some of the fence posts they ripped up were good yeah some of them were great some of them, not so great. Yeah. The idea that, you know, you could just execute people because they stand in your way politically through a reign of terror, not a really good idea. <laughs> the idea that you should abolish an absolute monarchy that's holding the people down and gives, you know, no political voice to 98% of the people on under the three-tiered, um, you know, feudal structure that France had, that was a good thing. but But- I think that the reason that I brought that up is because Thomas Sowell is getting to something that I think our founders understood and that so many other people just a few years later across the Atlantic Ocean did not get and what so many people today don't get. And that thing is, is that we're not saying don't rip fence posts up. What we're saying is, is that the heart of conservatism is an understanding that, you know what? Institutions don't just pop into existence. They take decades, hundreds of years, centuries, sometimes thousands of years to construct. And it is so much more than just your single lifetime. There's so many people on the left that somehow think that when they come into existence, everything that happened before them doesn't matter. yeah, And that anything that stands in the way of their policy end, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, right? Where, you know, the left gets upset about the Supreme Court because they didn't give them their policy goal. And so therefore the Supreme Court has to go. They do this with so many things, so many institutions, so many historical things. Where anything that stands in their
0: way, it has to go. Yeah, and they, they don't understand the value of the institution or the process. It's only the end state, and yeah. when they don't get the end state they want. Well, it must be a problem with the process or the institution, or it could be a problem with your desired end state. That's also. But let, let's let's go into this because this is there's a lot of stuff in here, right? So we just we just talked about you know, the the declaration says, you don't just break away from your government and try to start a new one for transient purposes. Then they say this, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies and such is now the necessity, which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. And what he's, he's referring to there is that Congress got mad about taxes. And then all of a sudden the declaration of independence, that's not what happened. They had the, the, there was, there was several things that took place. They had the first continental Congress. Um, They, they sent what was called the olive branch petition. And the whole idea of that was hey, you know, King George, we're letting you know that these things, we find these things problematic. We would like a a redress of these grievances. And essentially King George came back and said, pound sand, like, like (laughs) what his response to the olive branch petition was so horrendous, um, that a lot of the holdouts with respect to the continental Congress that were, were very uncertain about raising a continental army or, you know, coming to the aid of, um, the, the militia in Massachusetts, um, a lot of the ones that were, were completely against the concept of independence changed their mind when they saw King George's response mm-hmm. to the olive branch petition that they had insisted upon before they took any other mechanisms. Wow. So, and, and again, people don't learn about this. Again, they didn't all just get together and declare independence. They really fought to try to you know, reconcile with um, the British monarchy. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having, in direct object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny, absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. So this is where they get into, here's all of the reasons why we're doing this. And what you're going to notice is taxation without representation is one of many. So here's the first one. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. And what that, this is part of like four other ones that are very similar here. What it is, is basically the the king of England had a stranglehold on establishing laws within the colonies. So if they needed to establish laws in order to provide for good order, they had to actually wait for the king to approve that. And so they couldn't do it next. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. So again, not only can they... um, not only can they get the king to approve those laws, even the governors that the king has put in place that are trying to govern this colony can't get anything done without the king first approving it. And the king is going out of his way to not approve these laws. And so it is, it is interrupting the good order of society, of the economy, of trade, everything else within the colony. That's
2: a very long process back then. Oh,
0: my gosh. Yeah, because we're talking like months. <laughs> we didn't months. have the internet. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. It's not like the governor was picking up the phone, right? We're talking about months in order to enact correspondence. So it's very easy to see how. It, if it takes a while to decide what you want, then you got to send it by mail over to the king, you know, over, over on the ocean on a ship. King's got to sit there and, and, and look at it. Then they can get something back. You, You're talking six, seven, eight, nine months. And and we have people in England listening to this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. So this is another thing where it was kind of this idea that, um, hey, I'll pass these laws uh, for the accommodation of large districts, but only if you don't have right to local representation, right? So it's the whole idea, the only way that I will give you what it is that you want is that if you give up these other rights. He has called together legis- legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. This is an interesting one. Let me give, you, let me give people kind of a, a popular example of how something like this is done. Um, if, you're, if you're in the majority within the legislature, and let's say that you know there's gonna be a bunch of people showing up to protest a particular bill. And you docket the you docket the bill to be heard on a particular day in a particular committee room. And then five hours before you actually meet, you pick a completely different committee room on the other side of the building where nobody knows where, where it's going to be at.
2: Ooh, there's school boards and board of supervisors doing that right now. And then
0: you run it right away and they get that's an example of what they're doing right here. It's like, oh, you want you want to have a representative body? Go ahead and meet and redress grievances. Okay, no problem. I want you to meet here. Nah, no, no. Now I want you to meet over here. No, no, no. Now I want you to meet over. here. What do you, I'm not saying you can't meet as a representative body. We're we're just we're just setting up a place where this can act. That's what they're saying. He's like they they're coming up with basically procedural mechanisms to thwart the representative bodies that they have to be able to address these grievances let me see. Okay. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. So every time you had a legislature within the colonies that would actually stand up and say, Hey, look, this is wrong. We think this is a problem. We don't think you should be doing this or pushing back against uh, the king's appointed governor or customs agents or whatever it was. The king would then respond by like, okay, great. You don't get representation anymore. You don't get local representation. They would disband those bodies. So you can see by all the ones that we've just mentioned, taxes hasn't come up once yet. Right. What's come up is you have all of these different colonies addressing various issues, again, of a security nature, of a health nature, of an economic nature, of a law and order nature. And every time they're trying to establish things in order to make their society work, the king's the one standing in the way. So they come up with their local legislative bodies. Well, the king doesn't like what they're doing, so he abolishes them. Or the king doesn't like what he's doing, so the only way that he allows them to meet is by jumping through all these whole loops uh, or hoops that make it impossible for them them to do their job. So everything so far has been about more localized representation and being able to to govern society in accordance with the, the needs, wants, and demands of the people. All right, let's do the next one. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions, so after he's um, abolished the, the local representatives, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people large for their, their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. So again, this is the whole idea of you've gotten used to a particular process for establishing what your laws look like. Well, now someone comes in and says that's abolished. You can't do it anymore. Uh, okay. Well, then how are we supposed to adjudicate this? Uh, we'll tell you later. Okay. Well, in the midst of not telling us or or arbitrarily withholding this, you now make us vulnerable to attacks from without and to attacks from within. So once again, this is this is a this is a um, a complaint about the ability of of localities to be able to dictate the rules for the locality. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. Again, this is just about him interfering in the local governance of their particular colony and what actually makes sense for them based off of economics, based off of settling, things of that nature. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing the assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. So this goes into the whole idea of not only is he preventing popular legislatures, he's actually preventing courts. And so now imagine trying to run things without being able to adjudicate differences within a legal action. Well, again, if if we can't go to court to adjudicate a, a civil problem between the two of us, what ends up happening? You're a lot more conducive to people actually settling things that what they used to call like, you know, frontier law or the idea of, and this, this goes back to one of the previous complaints, right? If you're not going to allow us to actually govern ourselves in a civil manner, then we're relying on someone else to provide it. You're not even providing that. And that's what causes not only problems from without, it causes problems from within as well. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. So again, this is a process problem. So what he's the, the first the last complaint was you're refusing to his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. So what does he do? He comes in and goes, okay you can have judges, but those judges are completely dependent upon the will of the king for their tenure and for their payment. This is why we set up an independent judiciary
3: in the US And right away the there. this is why when people like AOC say, it's not just enough to abolish the filibuster and pack the court. We need to abolish the court. She is literally advocating for one of the things that drove our founding fathers to separate from the United Kingdom. Wow. Uh, because as Nick just said, like, this is actually probably one of the more like, so, so as you said at the beginning of this podcast, like, you know, you're taught about, oh, te- no taxation without representation. The meddling with the court structure was one of the other things. that They don't really teach you a whole lot in school that drove us to declare independence because when you don't have an independent judiciary, let alone a judiciary that's wholly dependent on the monarchy for its pay, for its appointment of its offices, for any sort of judicial precedent, you're going to end up with a disaster because the courts can do so many things that the, that the legislative branch simply can't do. The courts are, are ultimately one of the things that, that uphold the rule of law. It's the legislature that passes the laws, but it's the courts that help uphold it. And I it, it, what I'm saying is is that like it's incredible that somebody like AOC would be advocating for one of like literally a policy position that somebody like George
0: the would be in approval of. Well, she's of. an authoritarian. <laughs> and I think that's that's what some of this comes down to is that when if you, if you read what the founders had to say on a lot of this, like, why do we have, why do we have a um, co-equal branches of government between the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature? And, and the whole reason before that was is because when you combine the judiciary and the executive and the legislature in one person, you have tyranny. When you combine two of those things in one thing, you're, you're essentially leaning toward tyranny. And this idea that you're going to make um, the, the judges, the, the entire judicial system dependent upon what the executive wants, because that's what the king was. Think of the King as like the executive branch. You you're giving tyrannical style powers to the King. And yeah, to watch people like AOC praise FDR for threatening to cap, uh, uh, pack the court back in the thirties and then encouraging the same thing here. It's like you are pushing for one branch, which is supposed to be co-equal to essentially subvert that. And again, that leads toward greater tyranny, but that was, that was one of the major complaints here. And again, w- go go ask and go ask any kid in school right now hey did you know do you think this is one of the things that was in the Declaration of Independence I' like I've never heard of it all right let's look at another one here he has erected multiple of new offices uh, and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance so a lot of what this has to do is so he's not providing for local assemblies he's not even providing for you know a judicial system that, that is fair and impartial and separate from the executive but then he's creating all these new government offices that are Purely dedicated to tax collection, property assessment, um, you know, customs, duties, things like that. And and again, that's the part where it's you know, he's not doing all the things that we're supposed to do with the government, but he has created all these. You think of this as the you know, EPA he, and the IRS. He, he went, yeah, think yes, of it. That's, yes, that's perfect. I was about he, to say we, that we can't get judges, we can't get local representatives. We got plenty of tax agents, and we got plenty of EPA officials. Right.
3: That's one of my favorite lines in the declaration because this is basically the like they're using. Older language here, you yeah. know, eat out their substance, and you know, multitude of nuance. But like, what they're getting at here is basically, they're saying that King George the Third is a big government busybody,
0: <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> who loves bureaucracy, yeah. So here's a, these next two kind of go together. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislators. And he has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. Now you need to understand this in the context of things like the quartering act. So essentially it's not like the colonies were at war, right? It's not like England was at war with somebody and yet they were still being taxed to maintain these large standing armies. Now British parliament was arguing, well, these were necessary for frontier security and things of that nature. Um, And as things started to get more, um, um, as, as dissent started to rise in places like Massachusetts, more troops came in. They had things like the Quartering Act. So, when we think of a standing army in the United States today, we think of, okay, I got the 82nd Airborne Division on at, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. <laughs> that is not how this went down. Um, a lot of times, what happens is when new troops came in, they would go into neighborhoods and homes, and you were required by law to quarter troops within your house. And, and quartering just meant you provide them a place to live, you also had to feed them. Mm. Right that, that there's a reason why we actually have an amendment in the constitution that says that you can't quarter troops in, in private houses like this. Uh, the other part is this the military independent of and superior to the civil power. So this went back to the whole idea you saw this um with respect to um what is the Boston Massacre. So a lot of people don't recognize that the person that defended the British troops at the bo- at the trial for the Boston Massacre was John Adams. And he won that case. He, he made a good case that the British troops were actually responding to somebody that it, it had incited violence and, and didn't violate power, didn't engage in murder. But there was an argument on whether or not at that time all of those troops should be sent back to England to be tried as opposed to being tried in the colonies. And that was considered a very big deal. It was a very major departure. And it goes into this whole idea of he's, he's bringing in troops and he's essentially declaring a form of martial law to where now civil authorities are not in charge. It's military authorities. Let's look at the next one. He is combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. Again, this had this this was the whole concept of um, not allowing for local control and local governance. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. We talked about that before with things like the Quartering Act. For protecting them by mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. Again, that was the idea of, you know, when, when uh, a military comes in and they engage in oppressive or illegal acts, they're no longer tried within the civil court system. They're essentially protected by um, England for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. This was interesting, too, because this comes into this this whole kind of like mercantilist economic theory, which is a whole other conversation. Uh, But the East India Trading Company was kind of what you'd call like a public-private partnership, where it was technically a private company, but it had certain privileges and monopolies granted to it by the British government. So like the, the East India Trading Company for a while... Uh, had one of the largest navies in the world and actually had its own standing army. Now it was still under the jurisdiction of the crown, but it operated like a private company. Well, when they're talking about cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, parliament was passing laws that essentially said that the U.S. or or that the uh, colonies, the U.S. could only buy certain products from the East India Trading Company or from those companies that were approved by the British government. So it was a form of protectionism. And so this is where you get the Boston Tea Party. Right. If I if I can only buy tea from the East India Trading Company, well now they have a monopoly, which affects prices. It affects choice. So that's where you get things like. Can the- can can
3: we elaborate on this for a second? Because I've heard it. an argument um, from actually some family members of mine and some friends. Uh, I remember in the summer of 2020, um, there was an argument that was going around that I, it just frustrated me so much from people saying, "Well, the riots and the burning, you know, of public and private property. This is just like the Boston Tea Party." <laughs> Folks, okay. <laughs> to break this down for you, the tea that was being destroyed in the Boston Tea Party was government-owned tea yeah. that was monopolized and it was the it was the the central government it was the crown that was telling the colonists, you must legally purchase this. Yeah. You have no other option. And so the response was, you were forcing us to pay taxes for a product that we have no choice and no option, no third party options. We are going to protest by destroying the same thing that we're having to pay for. Yeah. This is not the same thing. And by the way, any any private property, and to give you an idea of just how careful this was, yeah. the 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 people that perpetuated the Boston Tea Party replaced the locks on the boxes in the crates on the ships that they had to smash in order to get to the tea because the locks were privately held, and so
0: yeah that that is I'm so
3: glad you brought that up. This is literally night and day between what happened in 2020 wow. which was mobs of people roaming around city setting fires to private property yeah. and then moralizing and acting like that they were were uh, you know the reincarnation of the boston tea <laughs> yeah, party we're sam adams. that is not the same I don't think thing sam
0: adams would have robbed a target right?
3: they, the, <laughs> the, the people at the boston tea party didn't then go into the city of boston and then light everybody's homes on fire they yeah. destroyed government pro- specific government property yeah. Yeah. it wasn't it, it, so so like anyway that's just that's something that just gets to me talk- so It's always so
1: fascinating to me to learn how organized they were at this time without cell phones and the internet.
0: Maybe it was because of it. I I mean, the fact that they were (laughs) all on the same page with replacing the locks. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So we just got that last one, cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. Ready for this next one?
2: Yeah. It comes number 17. 17 Number
0: 17 for imposing taxes on us without our consent. Yep. The only thing a school child knows about the Declaration of Independence is the 17th grievance, and we've got more. We're not done. Well, right? I,
2: hold on. I would argue, though, that a lot of people, especially this day and age, would say to free, relig- to to flee religious oppression yeah. like that. They really, well, but think
3: that that was the, Mayflower, was the Mayflower. Yeah, right? that was the Mayflower flower. That's, that's, we're that's not over hundred years earlier. Yeah,
0: we're not even talking about that here. But for imposing taxes on us without our consent, again, this whole idea. This goes back. You have to understand things like the Magna Carta. You have to understand about how people that considered themselves British citizens, even though they were living in a colony, how how they considered themselves. And, and England had gone through this multi-hundred-year, you know, hundreds of years of history since the Magna Carta of limiting the crown's power and limiting the government's power of being able to raise taxes. Culminating
3: in a revolution of their own. Yeah. Over a 100, what, 150-ish years? It was yeah. the 1640s when there was the English Civil Wars. Yeah. That led to the Cavaliers um, and Roundheads. Yeah, that, that led to the overthrow of Charles the First and eventually his execution. And that's a whole nother topic. But long story short, um, what people forget, and and again, this didn't happen in a vacuum. the The founding fathers understood not just their history as colonies; they understood British history because they were part of the British Empire. And so these people knew the history of the English Civil Wars, and they understood what happened. and And, and one of the things that that led to the English Civil Wars into the overthrow of Charles the I was the fact that the the monarchy kept trying to raise taxes without the consent of parliament. Yeah. And eventually parliament was like, no, you don't get to do this. And and, and and so one of the consequences, even though eventually the monarchy ended up being restored, so Cromwell took over for a while yeah. and they overthrew the monarchy, but then the, the monarchy came back under Charles II about a generation later. Well, one of the, the precedents that was set in the English Civil Wars was the idea that parliament gets – to be the one to set taxes. And the reason for that is because Parliament is elected by the people. Now, there was some problems with that too that weren't settled until the 1800s. But the point is, is that it took away this power from the monarchy alone to set taxes and it set it in the hands of Parliament. Well what happens when you don't have representation in parliament that, that it, it is so much more deep than just simply no taxation without representation. There's a whole lot more history behind that, that the founding fathers got to, that I think is largely forgotten today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Next one for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury. Again, to understand British history, to understand British common law, this, this idea of trial by jury was essential because without it, once again, you're running into this problem of tyrannical government rule where they can stack the books against you. The whole idea of trial by jury of your peers is the idea that someone has to go through a process of convincing, you know, and, and again, in the U.S., 12 people, and, and this think about this is fascinating, it's not a majority of 12 people. You got to convince all 12 people that somebody is guilty of something before you can start depriving them of life liberty or, or happiness, or life liberty or property. Now again there's there's different ways you can go to trial and things like that but in a case where a jury is the prescribed method the king was removing that and that was a, a huge deal to the colonists. For transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. Again, this was one of those areas where not only am I depriving you of trial by jury in your country, now, depending on what the crime is, I'm gonna remove you from where you're at. I'm gonna completely remove you from your state and now I'm gonna send you up. I'm gonna send you back to England to try you in a court where I know I can convict you.
2: Well, and on trumped up charges, basically. Yeah, and on Trump
0: and, and this is also the part that you gotta keep in mind. In the United States, we also have a process. Where a defendant can be moved to a different jurisdiction. The difference is we move the defendant to a different jurisdiction when we don't think the defendant can get a fair trial within that jurisdiction. They were removing defendants to places where they knew they couldn't get a fair wow. trial.
3: That was the point.
0: That was the point, <laughs> right? And again, on on a, for pretended offenses. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and a fit instrument for inducing the same absolute rule into these colonies. So again, you you look at what what they were doing in other places surrounding the 13 colonies and how they were then going to try to replicate that within the 13 colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. This goes into some of the original, you know, those top, those first four that were being mentioned and how he was constantly coming in and just, okay, you, you have a charter, you've established, and, and keep in mind, Virginia had its first legislative body, the House of Burgesses, in 1619. We're talking 1776 now. So we're not talking about legislative bodies or charters that had been established five minutes ago. We're talking about people that had lived under certain norms, certain rules, certain concepts and ideas for sometimes hundreds of years, or I should say 150 hundreds, years. 150 years. All right. Beforehand, so again, when we talk about them, you know, taking away charters or abolishing most valuable laws or ultimately fundamentally the forms of government, we're talking about him coming in and, and getting rid of things that have been in place for you know, 50, 100, 150 years within these colonies. So these were major departures that were being made on fairly arbitrary terms. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Again, very similar to some of the the earlier ones, but the idea that they would just abolish the legislature and then they would step in and say, we're going to make the laws for you. So, so think of this on some level, it's not a perfect representation, but think of this on some level as the federal government Doing what it sometimes often does, completely ignoring the Ninth and 10th amendments, completely ignoring Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution in any substantive way and saying, "Okay, Congress is now going to make laws for California or Oklahoma or Wyoming that have never been made by Congress before. Those have always been made by the California legislature, the Wyoming legislature, the Virginia legislature. But now we're just we're going to take that away and Congress will now decide what your laws are. How do you think we'd respond? All right. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging wars against us. This is when we start to get into this the, one's pretty
3: obvious. Yeah, <laughs> the, viol- the violent
0: response where more troops are coming in. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our courts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Now again, now we're getting into things like um, you know what was going on in Massachusetts at the time. He is at this time. Uh, transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and per, uh, perfidy, scarcely parallel in most barbarous ages and totally unworthy, the head of a civilized nation. This is where you get into things like um, the um, the, Hessians. the Hessians. So the, the, they they were actually hiring foreign mercenaries to come to the United States and engage in certain activities that let's just say that British redcoats might not have been willing to to do. Mm. Um, he has constrained our fellow citizens, taking captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall uh, themselves by their hands. This is like press ganging. So like the, the British Navy had a thing where they would find U.S. or they would find um, colonial merchant ships. They would take the ships and then they would literally kidnap people and force them to join the British Navy and now participate in, you know, killing America.
3: By the way, they did that all the way until the War of 1812.
0: They did. They did. Press ganging was common uh, like all, all the way after the revolution. He's excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages. This is the part that obviously, you know.
3: It's not the woke part, yeah, but not we, the woke I can part. actually explain what they're getting at Yeah, whose but... known
0: rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. What they were talking about here was they were actually, the, the British were um, collaborating with frontier uh, Indian tribes and encouraging them to. Attack American colonists. They mm. were setting up alliances with them and whatnot. And and again, th- there's there's this idea that the the founding fathers considered all Indians you know savages. That's that's not actually true. That's
3: not what they were getting at. That's yet.
0: not actually true. Um, but they were saying that there there were there were certain groups and there were certain rules of war within certain tribes where they didn't distinguish at all between age, sex, and condition. So you can you can easily point to at times where Europeans did the exact same thing. Sure. Okay. But by this time of warfare it's not to say that it didn't happen, but if you did kill women and children, right, you, you could be criminally prosecuted within, um, British law that, okay, that wasn't happening within certain tribes. And when, what they're saying is, is that, okay, we're in a position where you've taken away our legislature, you're increasingly taking away our ability to defend ourselves, but then you're also inciting violence against, you know, our, our, our groups. Um, and okay, now here we go. All right, now and that now, so those were all the those were all the different complaints that sure. they, they lodged, right? Those are all the reasons. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose char- character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. So again, this mm. is them acknowledging that we did things like the Olive Branch Petition. We did things where we're trying to reconcile and every time we do it, we're basically treated like we're just subjects, not citizens. And the end result is you're a tyrant and you're not fit to rule free people. Nor have we been wanting an attention to our British brethren. We have warned from time to time to of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We've reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnum, magnanimity and have Conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and uh, consanguinated. Consang, ah, I'm going to butcher that. Uh, Bunch we, of must, tongue twisters here. we must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in p- peace friends. So they're essentially saying that not only have we appealed to the king, we've appealed to parliament we've appealed to other British citizens. We have implored on all of them to please just return to us the rights as British citizens. They've refused to do so. As such, we are now separating from them in war. We're enemies and peace. We're friends. So it's this, again, it's this desire that we don't want war, but at this point we do want separation. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor.
3: Hancock's giant signature immediately <laughs> below that. I it, love the ending of the declaration. Oh, of
0: but every stuff. time I hear someone read the ending, like, I, I well just, yo, yeah. I, oh, I want the like music to start playing. Like, that's when <laughs> the fireworks should go. It's off. interesting,
2: all of the artwork that shows all these people signing all of this together in one room.
0: Yeah.
3: Did yeah. <laughs> it to That's that not way. how it happened. That happened. Right. Yeah. Because there was some, I mean, there were people coming and going. It took, I, so, um, John, fun fact, John Adams thought that it would be July 2nd would be the day that we would be celebrating. Second or third. It was the second because uh, Congress voted for independence on the second, Yeah. but it took them two days to actually get the document drafted and everything and have everybody start signing it. So that's why we now celebrate it on the fourth. But like, if you go back to his writings, he's talking about how like July 2nd will go down in history as like the greatest American holiday of all time. Yeah. And he's like predicting everything that we do today. He just got the date wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, no, uh, the ending of the Declaration of Independence is phenomenal. It's it's perfectly well written because it, it it and it it's often overlooked because it's getting to like we have crossed the Rubicon. There has yeah. been multiple attempts to to rectify all of this to avoid war because there had already been fighting going on. The the revolution had started yeah. a few years before. And I mean there have been debates within parliament over how to deal with this. And unfortunately, Maybe for the grand arc of history, maybe it was actually a good thing. But but unfortunately, at the time, there were people in Parliament that were actually siding with us. Yeah, um, It was largely the Whig faction in Parliament that was yeah. actually sympathetic Edmund, to— Edmund Burke. Yeah, there, there, it was the Whig faction in Parliament that was actually on our side, but they were decisively outnumbered time and time again. And, and Parliament was, at the time, controlled by the faction that basically viewed these people as rebels and traitors, and they needed to be put down— and so that's why there's um, there's a, a theory. It's not super popular, but there's a theory that the um, American Revolution is really an English civil war localized in the colonies. Yeah, I've heard that. And it, 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 and, and the reason for that is because our arguments, our grievances were, were really that we were not being treated the way that we should have been as English citizens. Yeah, right. And, and that's why we keep drawing from things like John Locke's Second Treatise on Government, which was used to retroactively justify the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Mm-hmm. For so long, we weren't going out there. As Nick said at the beginning of this podcast, the beginning of all this was not independence. The beginning of all of this was trying to reclaim some of the liberties that we should have had as mm-hmm. British subjects. And once it was impossible to reclaim that, that's when we resorted to independence.
0: I, I think people, to put this in perspective too from like a historical timeline. Mm -hmm. The Battle of Bunker Hill was more than a year before the Declaration of Independence. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I think most people have the impression that we declared independence and that's when these hostilities... No, no. When when, when you talk about like Lexington and Concord, when you talk about the Battle of Bunker Hill, when you talk about the the formation of the Continental Army and, and George Washington being chosen... All of that was before the Declaration oh, wow. of Independence, right? We were, because you, you had these problems going on and it had reached such a fever pitch in Massachusetts that more troops were coming in and they were starting to do things that the rest of the colonies said, okay, we can't ignore this. And so they decided that they were going to lend the assistance of their militias to the Massachusetts state militia. And then it was, now we're going to form a continental army. We're going to put George Washington at the head of it. And even at that point, when Adams started talking about independence, again there was there was a lot of state there was a lot of colonies at that time that were not comfortable with that. They they really thought that this is yeah we we get it we're now having like pitched battles with the British but this is because we want to reclaim our rights not because we want to separate. But more and more it became the issue where wow. independence is the only thing that can possibly happen. But so it's
1: not like the Declaration of Independence showed up on the king's doorstep. It's like oh well we're going to war. No
0: yeah no 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 we we had already been arguably we had already been in a shooting match okay. with the British. But you're well saying over a that year.
1: up until the point of the Declaration of Independence being signed, the purposes of those battles were not separation, no. but re- regaining the rights that they had once had. And then they came to the conclusion that, well, we're not making any progress and we have to now at this point separate.
0: Well it was the so you had you had certain colonies that were very, were far more open to the idea of independence than others were like I said South Carolina not they were opposed okay. to it New York was opposed to it Pennsylvania or, or interesting the Pennsylvania delegation um, was really fascinating because Benjamin Franklin was far more open to independence because how he had been treated as an ambassador mm-hmm. to England um, on, on behalf of the colonies um, but other members of the Pennsylvania delegation were some of the most outspoken critics of it uh, by the same token when the declaration of independence was signed um i mean they led the pennsylvania militia you know fighting against the british yeah so it, it, again it's just a fascinating it it's it really is a fascinating time period that I, I think we're we're doing a huge disservice to now right by by this kind of minimalistic way that we analyze it
3: where it's not just minimalistic it's it was a year ago that you did a podcast about the lefts what the left was saying on the 4th of July. Because yeah. last year, they, there were prominent people on the left in elected office or in public life that were saying things that was just downright despicable yeah. about the founding of this country. And I, I feel like that that ordinary people, even apolitical people, just want somebody who's going to stand up and defend the origins of this country. Yeah. And I'm sorry, the United States is not was not founded on slavery, bigotry, racism, any of that stuff. The United States inherited those things yeah. that had been universally existing throughout the entire world for all of history. But again, what I said at the beginning of the show, like our founders weren't perfect people. They didn't create a perfect system, but they did create – and they didn't solve all of our problems. But they did create a system where those problems could be solved. And I feel like the left just totally misses that today.
0: Well, and I think it's gotten to the point where, um, you know, I, I used to I used to chalk a lot of it up to ignorance, and I still think that explains part of it. But now I think it's a little bit more deliberate. I think we have we have some prominent people on the left that at, at their at a fundamental level despise the United States because of the sort of moral precepts right. that were articulated within the Declaration of Independence, because of how that philosophy informed the Constitution and the limitations on, on government power because ultimately it is rooted in the idea that individual rights and liberties are inherent and governments have a responsibility to protect them. Governments are not there to micromanage and organize society in the way that political mm-hmm. leaders think it should look. And they see that as a direct, a, a, a direct prohibition on their goals, objectives, and the, the power that they need in order to achieve them. And they have now turned this on its head and turned that into the thing that's immoral. Right. Anything standing in the way of them achieving what they think are their their good objectives. And that is why we are seeing more and more people who not only, again, I would love to say they just misunderstand. I think they're trying to deliberately misrepresent what the sentiment was behind the Declaration of Independence, what the context was with respect to the whole scope of human history leading up to that point. And now they're looking back, having lived under the benefit, the wealth, the security and the protection of those same founding principles, having been the beneficiary of something that they did not have to actually accomplish on their own and critiquing it because it's not perfect. And then offering up their solution, which, oh, by the way, has been tried before, has failed miserably, has led to oppression and tyranny and the degradation of individual liberty not to mention poverty and in some cases genocide.
2: I think it's because a lot of times I think they identify more with the French revolution than the American revolution. Mm, yes. And I think that, um, oftentimes they mix up the two because their ideology is more in line with the French revolution. Um, and then if you look at it, I mean, obviously you guys did a why minutes on why the French revolution failed. Um, it was it, it was wildly different. The motive was wildly different. Um, not to say that 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 uh,
3: see, I feel like the, that a lot of the motivation was similar. Well, and I, I understand there was also some stark differences, but I feel like that I mean because you
0: no, get I, back I, think, to, I think there were similar grievances. But I think the there were similar justifiable grievances.
2: but they bought yes. into a different solution yeah and the their solution ended up bringing about.
3: Napoleon. Absolute yeah. <laughs> atrocities.
2: And installing more absolute monarchs. Yeah. And and so uh it 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 really deviated there. But I think that is part of it, is that I feel like the left does not have a problem with an absolute monarch as long right. as it's As theirs.
3: long as it's theirs that's doing
1: yeah. it. Right. So let's move, move right into our making the argument section. We've we'll got okay. a few more minutes here. I, I kinda wanna take this in two pieces, one being, you know how should the Declaration of Independence define what it is we believe today? And then two, I'm going to propose some arguments that people on the left would make to delegitimize what the Declaration of Independence should mean today. So I'm interested first in, Nick, when you look at the Declaration of Independence, how should we use what is in that document to help define what it is we believe and why we believe it? Or let me ask you this way, what impact has the Declaration of Independence had on your political philosophy?
0: Well, I think the first thing that we need to do whenever we're studying a particular moment in history is you have to understand the, the context and of what was going on. So the cultural context, the economic context, the, you know, everything— um, that informed the way people thought about things at that moment. Sure. Because that's the only way you're going to get a proper understanding of why they said what they said and why they did what they did. And, it, and it, again, it's fascinating to me because let, let me give an example. And I know this is a little bit off topic, but it's relevant. The more we learn about how life develops in the womb, the more we realize, the more evidence we have to suggest that oh no, I mean we're talking about like heartbeats at eight right. weeks, and we're talking about you know uh, you know th- the amount of development that's taking place at such an early stage we never understood before. Let's go a hundred years into the future, and now people are looking at that, and all of a sudden you know viability is instantly because you know at any stage we can actually you know s- you know protect human life. Yeah, and a hundred years from now people are looking back at someone that let's just say it's not pro abortion but is you know I I'm, I'm confused about the issue maybe these, and they're looking at me going you barbarian mm-hmm. how could you ever justify using a saline solution to burn a baby to death in the womb i'm pretty sure the leftists nowadays be like whoa 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 wait a second you know when i when i felt that way back in 1975 we didn't know what you know now yeah wait we, we were living in a different context now again doesn't make it right Right? But it is still important to understand the context before you start analyzing someone's motivations or why they thought the way they did. And the more you learn about the context of that time, the more revolutionary you understand how, how important those fundamental principles were. And, and here's what it comes down to. It was the idea that, one, the rights were inherent or natural. Sure. The rights were not a grant purely a political society. They were not simply a grant of government. It was not, it was not purely a question of whether or not you could impose your will on somebody else. You, as a human being, Man, woman, you as a human being had inherent rights and that among those unalienable rights were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That revolutionary. The other thing that was revolutionary about the, that was the idea that the only legitimate reason for government to exist is to help secure those rights with pre-exist. That was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. You look at most governments up to that point, it was not about securing the rights of the citizenry. Right. All right, So those two concepts right there. Um, and then that would be used to inform the constitution, which was, which not just organized and designed the federal government, but put incredibly strict limitations on federal power at the same time enshrining uh, certain rights within the bill of rights. And then you have the ninth and 10th amendment, which was kind of like our, our check to make sure that right. they didn't go over, um, uh, just because we enumerated these, these ones in the first eight. Um, that is what I think people should get out of the Declaration of Independence. Viewed through its time and its context, just absolutely revolutionary. And, and the principles that they were going for there, I, I think in many cases, are just universally true. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't stop being true because, you know, th- this was back in 1776, that people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Right. And so I think the, the, the lasting nature of it, the, the philosophical nature of it, is what's been the most impactful on me.
1: Well, was there anyone before, you know, the time that the Declaration of Independence was written who, uh, was there anyone who had acknowledged the idea of natural rights?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so again, we're, we're not pretending that the founders, you know, made all this up on their own. Right. Never. I mean, you, you could, yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that, yes, yeah, Scripture does. Yeah. Right. The Bible does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but if, if you're looking for other political uh, thinkers, people like, you know, John Locke mm-hmm. um, with his two treatises on government, um, Adam Smith, um, a lot of people within the Scottish Enlightenment uh, right. were, were instrumental in that. Um, you know, you, you can go all the way back too, to the, the Greek city states and whatnot. And again, it's it's not as if they were claiming that it's not as if they were articulating it with the same degree of conviction or I think comprehensive argumentation that, you know, Locke did or the founders did. Uh, but th- there was still this idea that power should not just be arbitrarily imposed. Right. Um, that that there should be some d- degree of of citizen participation, and that that citizen participation granted a degree of legitimacy mm-hmm. to the government. You you see this too with the whole idea of when the um, Roman monarchy uh, fell, when Tarquin fell in, in early Roman history, and it was replaced with the Republic. Um, Again, not a perfect articulation of universal human rights, but definitely a a progression in what we would call a positive direction.
1: Well, I I think what is, uh, it's been a long while since I read through the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, going over this again with you today, it's without a doubt clear that the people, you know, in the 13 states at this time were living under absolute tyranny.
3: I think that it was more that, They were worried that that was what was going to happen. They were moving in that direction. That's why they were fighting a war at the time. And notice how there's there's something like four or five or six points in there that are directly related to that war. They're talking about how he's plundered their coastlines and burned their villages and he's transporting armies over there. I I think there was a real concern that if the fighting went south Mm -hmm. and if the revolution failed, that they would end up being subjected to basically like an occupying foreign power. They wouldn't yeah, even okay. be treated as colonies as part of the British Empire. They would be treated as occupied territory.
0: Well, And, and again, when you, look at, when you look at why we have the separation of powers that we do, we have, we have two major types of separation of powers in the United States. Mm-hmm. One is the separation we all kind of recognize, which is between the legislature, the executive branch, and the judiciary. The other is between federal and state. So there, there, there's this this constant um, organization and attempt within the United States, within the United States to d- divide up power, mm-hmm. because they recognize that the concentration of all of those authorities in in one person or one entity is, is what tyranny is right. created up. And so, when you look at all these things, what what are they complaining about? Well, you've you've taken away. Or any legislative, local legislative power we have. You've taken away uh, the judiciary and you've pretty much put it within the boundaries of the executive branch. Um, we're not even, I mean, our executive is the king. And so now they're living in a world where the, the executive branch is exercising legislative power and judicial power. Sure. That's what we generally attribute with absolute despotism or absolute monarchy. And again as, as as people that consider themselves to be British citizens yeah they were living in a colony right um, but they still consider themselves to be British citizens and afforded so then yeah they, they're definitely seeing this so it, it's not in the sense that King George could have walked onto the street in New York City and shot anyone he wanted like you know you, you see with you know other despotic yeah. or, or tyrannical regimes but it was absolutely something where certain core um, processes and organizations which were essential to defending civil liberties, we're being completely eroded and it was getting worse. It wasn't getting better. Well, right. if, if things are continually getting worse, then you have to assume, okay, we're getting to a point where we're going to be treated differently than anybody else currently yeah. over in the UK. And, and we don't want that. So let's say I'm in a
1: conversation with someone and I want to reference something from the Declaration of Independence, but I know that the individual I'm speaking with does not give much relevance to this document. What is something that I can say to them in 15, 30 seconds, which might help them understand how relevant this document is to the conversation taking place today?
0: So one of the things I find is really interesting is is every once in a while I will say something or I will reference something, but I won't tell them where it's from. I'll just represent the philosophical principle. Okay, and then what you'll end up finding out is it'll be like, oh yeah, no, I totally agree with that. So if you, the moment you say that uh, people are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they, they know what you're referencing. Right. But if you said, you know what, I just think, I, I think that the bottom line is is that you as an individual, you as a human being, have inherent worth, and that you have certain civil, you are owed certain civil liberties, and and the idea that you know, somebody can just come in and strip you of those. It is wrong. It's morally reprehensible. I, I don't think you know. Some politician didn't give you your humanity. Some right. politician didn't give you those right. Don't do, those are yours, and they're supposed to protect them. Yeah. If I say that, they're like, oh yeah, yeah. You know what that's like. Uh, all people are created equal and entitled mm-hmm. to certainly inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, that,
1: that's really interesting. So rather than attempt to Um, legitimize the Declaration of Independence in that person's mind. In that moment, you are taking the philosophy from the Declaration of Independence that that person is very unlikely to
0: disagree with, which could then help. Well, well, so conservatives have gotten this wrong for a long time. I'm going to be real honest on this. Sure. Conservatives will say things like the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence or George Washington, okay? All great things. And somebody else will say, who cares? Right. Do you know why the Declaration of Independence has relevance? It's not simply because it it charted off one of the most significant historical events in human history. It's because philosophically it's correct. Mm -hmm. Do you know why the Constitution has relevance? It's because philosophically and organizationally it has worked. But the problem is is that if you raise people and you've you've taught them about a thing instead of the reasons behind the thing, the context around the thing, the philosophy which informed the thing, and then somebody else comes in and tells them the thing is bad... And it, points to something out of context. Well, then now <laughs> you have to teach that the relevance is based off of the mm-hmm. correspondence to truth. The substance. The substance of it. And then you explain, okay, this document is relevant and this document is, is beautiful or effective because it corresponds with these truths right. that you already believe. And somebody else has tried to convince you of something that's wrong or incorrect about it. But the first thing I do when somebody has a negative opinion of a person, a place, or a thing that I don't think they should have a negative opinion of is not to go back and defend the person, place, or thing. It's defend whatever concept or philosophy that I know that deep down they agree with and then work that into why that thing is still relevant.
1: sounds a to me, it kind of sounds like sales. You don't try and go in and sell the product. You sell the the solution that that product – Provides
0: Well, and, and again, sometimes when you say sales, people think manipulation. Yeah. It's not manipulation. It, it's the idea that all of us have certain experiences with, with things. And when we have an experience that is relevant to us or, or is like touched us or moved us deeply, it sometimes Mars, the way we look at something, it, it can either cause us to look at it with rose colored glasses, or it can cause us to think that something is just, just bad or horrible or evil when, when really it's not. Mm-hmm. And so, part of the problem with the way that we have these discussions is that if I'm talking to somebody that we just went through four years of college, being told that the Declaration of Independence is a charter of of you know bigotry and tax evasion, right? Well, am I, I going to sit there and immediately try to defend the Declaration of Independence, or am I going to start asking them deeper questions about okay, well, why do you you know do you consider bigoted, yeah. or you know do you think it's okay for someone to do X, Y, or Z? I, I'm gonna frame I'm gonna frame the discussion in a way that they can receive it based off of what I know they value. And once we've established those things, then then they can be reintroduced to a concept or an or or a document.
1: Through um, a different lens.
0: Through a different lens and just say, you know, this is something else to consider. And I'm I'm not trying to impose my viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm now offering a different perspective on something. And if there's someone that is even relatively you know, open to, to evidence and conversation and different perspectives, that's something they should be able to accept and then consider. Yeah.
1: All right. Last question. Let's say I'm in a conversation with someone and they think the constitution declaration of independence is not worth our time because the writers and the founders of our nation were slave owners.
0: Oh, okay. Well, this, well, okay. So the, the most obvious response to that some is, well, no, some of them were not, certainly not all of them were. Um, but I, I it depends on how long you have to talk with somebody. So the short version of this is to, to correct some of the things where it's like, well, no, they weren't all slave owners. In fact, some of them were, were very, very dedicated abolitionists. Mm-hmm. So can I listen to them still? Like, Can I listen to what John Adams had to say right. about it? Um, Abigail Adams w- was a, a huge advocate not only for emancipation. She was an advocate for women's rights in the 1700s. You know, John Adams, so is what they had to say, is that relevant now?
3: Mm-hmm. They're going to um, say no still.
0: Well, well, and that's, and that really comes down to the question. It's like, if you're talking to someone that's, if you're talking to someone that's wholly unreasonable, then at some level, there's other reasonable people out there that are willing to actually have a discussion, spend your time there. The other thing, but that's the first thing I would say if I did have much time. It's like, okay, you're saying that it was, it was all created by this sort of people. First of all, you are stereotyping an entire generation of people sure. based off of one thing. And it happens to be incorrect or accurate. Do you really mean to stereotype an entire generation of people? which had very different beliefs and very different experiences mm-hmm. and very different backgrounds. Do you, do, you want, do you really want to do that? Do you want to engage in that kind of stereotyping?
2: Which is actually bigotry. Yeah.
0: Do you think that's appropriate? No, okay. Now they're on the horns of a dilemma, right? Because they yeah. just told you the reason that they don't like this is because it's bigoted and it's mean and it's this, but now they're engaging in similar behavior. So you got to get them back to a realm where they recognize, that, okay, we're going to have an honest discussion about yeah. this, not an inappropriate one. The second thing that you have to do is, great, and I'm not asking you to follow George Washington, I'm asking you if this system of government you think makes sense. And if you're saying, well, no, it can't make sense because this person did something really bad. My question is, okay, what are you offering? And what, what are you, what's your, um, what's your alternative
1: mm-hmm.
0: now? If they say collectivism, you, oh, you want to talk about what Karl Marx did? Yeah. You want to talk about how Karl Marx lived his life? You want to talk about how Engels lived his life? You want to talk about what Mao Zedong did? You want to talk about what Stalin did? If you're looking for perfect people to organize your government, I got I got bad news for you're you. Never the human find race is a horrible place to search it out. Yeah. It, it's one of the things I tell people all the time, if you're looking for a savior, go to church. Do not look for do not look for a political leader. But so those are the two, those are the two branches that I usually take that in is that, is that one of them is the idea where, again, you're, you're doing what we call in logic, the horn, putting them on the horns of the dilemma. They have said that, well, I think these documents are bigoted. Why do you think they're bigoted? Because the people that did it were bigoted. Okay. Well, bigotry is, is an unreasonable hatred for a particular group of people, usually based off of a, a certain degree of ignorance of those people. Mm-hmm. You've just classified an entire generation of people, many of whom fall nowhere near the description you've just provided. And you've said that because they happen to be at the same time or their names were on the same document, they're all the same and they believed all the same things. That is getting really close to bigotry. So do do you want to stick with that or do you want to have a more open and honest conversation, especially within the context of the times, not in order to justify certain actions, but to at least recognize that people felt about this differently because of their experiences just like you feel about it differently because of your experiences. That's, that's the first category. The second category has to deal with the idea that if, if the only document you're going to follow, if the only solution to certain things like ones you're going to follow come from perfect people, you will find nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and it is so important. I, I cannot stress this enough. Whenever somebody is tearing apart the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, et cetera, and they're saying, well, no, we, we should do it. How should we do it differently? Who influenced you to do it that way? And are we going to apply... The same reasoning with respect to their values, the, their decisions, the things that they 've done as we are to everybody else, or do you get special dispensation for your person if you happen to like their idea yeah because i, I got I got news for you. there were some really bad people in history that brushed their teeth i 'm not going to stop brushing mine <laughs> because they were bad so it, again this is this is a logical fallacy where you 're essentially saying that because you know, because this person was a bad person and they had something to do with something that might be good or because this person made a very bad decision in one category of their life and therefore anything else they touched is, is tainted by that. If that's really the reasoning you want to use, it's logically fallacious and you're going to run into some real problems, yeah. not just with the other political people that you follow throughout history, you're probably going to run into some problems with yourself. So let, let's make an important distinction within those two things. Um, and then the other thing too, is you, the third category is you just kind of look at comparative history. Okay. You're saying this is all bad. You're saying this is all horrible. It goes back to the whole Thomas soul ripping up fence posts. It's been going on for a while now. And as I look at the course of human history, this has achieved some pretty monumental results, not just economically, not just from a security perspective of people being able to live in relative peace and security, but also for the advancement of civil liberties in a way that has never been seen before in human Mm -hmm. history.
2: Can I ask a question from the right real quick? Yeah. Um, because I think that uh, both sides do tend to both, when I say both sides, I'm talking about Democrats and Republicans, um, do oftentimes not consider the entire document. And they, they sometimes make light of things or assert things, uh, w- which kind of waters down what it really was. And one of the things that I hear has to do with national divorce and has to do with how bad are things going to get before there's, you know, people rise up and they overthrow this government or what. And uh, so they'll, they'll kind of give this attitude like things are just as bad as they were back then. And you know, when are we going to rise up or blah, blah, blah. What do you have to say to that?
0: I I think that I think for a lot of people that's hyperbole. Mm -hmm. Um, I think for some people, they're actually, they're actually looking for an honest answer to that question. Mm-hmm. That's like what I'm asking. When, when does it get so bad that you, you're actually saying, you know what? Um, and, and you saw when Trump got elected in 2016, there were people carrying around signs in California that said, California is a nation, not a state. That, that's essentially a call for secession. Now, now here's, here's what I would say. I think there's an, an individual response to this. And I also think there's what we might call a more like a, a community or, or, corporate based response to it. And that's based off of, you know, the state level or, or whatnot. What was going on in the late 17, 1700s in, in the colonies um, wasn't in, in many cases significantly worse than anything that we're addressing now, right? Like the 82nd airborne division is not stationing troops in your personal home and forcing you to cook for them. Um, they're they're not coming in and, and violently you know confiscating uh, your firearms like they did it like they were attempting to do with Lexington and Concord. Um, they're they're not dissolving our state legislatures, and allowing the president to essentially decide who our judges could be, right? So th- there's a lot of very right. significant differences. Now, by the same token, you're paying a whole lot more in taxes <laughs> than than any of our founders ever dreamed we would be. Uh, the 16th Amendment has really problematic um, implications, which is the federal income tax, for the separation of powers between the states and the federal government. Um, we are seeing more places where they are attempting to severely curtail um, things like Second Amendment rights, which I believe is a basic civil liberty. And you see a larger sector of the population that is trying to run more things from Washington, D.C. than they are their own state legislatures. So I, I, don't, I don't, again, I... I take that part of the Declaration of Independence seriously where it says you shouldn't separate for transient reasons, especially ones that can essentially be resolved within the system that you currently have. Because that's what they did. It, it, again, they weren't trying to separate from England when the Battle of Bunker Hill began. They were just looking for a restoration of their rights as, as British citizens. So it is important to look at this within the proper context. It is important to recognize that when people are just randomly engaging in hyperbolic comments on Twitter... That, that's probably not what we should be gauging our entire response on, regardless of what side of the political spectrum is engaging in it. Um, we, we do need to have a, a more serious and robust conversation about the way that we want to be governed in this country. And remember that the reason why the vast majority of political decisions that were supposed to impact your life were supposed to be made at the state or local level, not the federal government. But, you know, again... The answer to the question is, is actually fairly simple, and it goes down to cost-benefit analysis. What is the cost and what are the benefits? And if, if you're telling me that you think the benefits of separating from the United States right now outweigh the cost, I'm going to tell you I don't agree with that. Um, but I, I think it would be highly ignorant of world history to assume that we've surpassed that kind of consideration. Uh, the bottom line is is the the various things that we care about and that we love and that we want to fight for with respect to the preservation of individual liberty and the idea that we we are a strong community, but we're still ultimately a community of individuals. We have to be. That's where civil liberties start. Civil liberties cannot begin with a collective. It can't. It has to begin with an individual. Um, and, and at some level, they're you reach a critical mass where people feel like they've been infringed on enough and they're simply not going to accept it anymore. And it usually starts with passive um, civil disobedience. And we've seen that happen before in the United States. And and in many cases, it's been a wonderful thing. I thank God Rosa Parks refused to move. She was breaking the law. She was engaging in criminal activities. I thank God that she did it, but you know what? She wasn't hurting anybody when she did it. She wasn't looting a target. She wasn't burning down a, a small business. She was going right to the source of where the oppression and the injustice was, and that was a a government-imposed law, and she was standing up to it. And she was doing it in a way that had a huge impact, and I hope that that's where we're still at as a country, where we can make those kinds of statements and we can affect the sort of change that we want, not simply because we've reelected someone new, but because we've actually achieved something within the public consciousness that recognizes, that causes them to recognize that this is worth fighting for and worth preserving. All right, I think we're going to live it there. We've had kind of a it's been kind of a long episode, um, but I, I think an important one, especially for Independence Day. Uh, look, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a comment. Also, if this is the sort of content that you think is useful, We'd especially really like to hear from For you. those of you who are out here that are that are doing homeschooling and whatnot, and maybe this is something that uh, you know you like this discussion um, for that, please let us know. And let us know how we can improve on that. We've actually been kicking around ideas on how to do some more content, yeah. maybe separate from the podcast that would actually uh, be able to help some of those parents out there that are either homeschooling or they're just trying to augment their child's education, whether yeah. they're a public school or private school with additional content that they think would be useful. If you think this episode represents something that might be able to fit into that, please let us know. Once again, thank you for joining us. I hope you had a great Independence Day and hopefully there will be many more to celebrate in the future. I'm Nick Freitas and we'll see you next episode.